Last week we saw that Jesus began this high priestly prayer. And in verses 1 to 5, we saw that Jesus prayed for himself. He asked God to glorify him by providing the cross to save. And in turn, Jesus said that he would glorify the Father by obediently enduring the cross. This, this was Jesus' self-declaration. He speaks of his commitment to fulfill the plan of salvation. Not only does Jesus know what's coming for himself, he also knows what's coming for his disciples with his departure. And so in verse 6, now he begins to pray for them. Jesus prays for them to be rooted in the gospel message that God has sent him to share. God must keep these disciples from the future dangers that are coming because Jesus has kept them through his earthly ministry. He's compelled to pray for them because he knows that his mission is coming to an end while the mission of the disciples is just getting started. Jesus will send the disciples to continue preaching the gospel message in the same way that God the Father had sent Jesus to preach the gospel. Yet, this will only be possible if the disciples tightly grip onto the truth that Jesus is the Savior, and if God tightly grips the lives of these disciples. So let's look at the text together. First, keeping God's word, verses 6 to 8. Before Jesus prays for his disciples, he sends the grounds as to why God should answer his prayer. He says that he is committing his, these disciples now to the care of God because he has completed his own mission. And so he says in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they kept your word. Jesus spent his earthly ministry manifesting God's name. He uses this term, your name, three times in the text. And it means to make the character of God known. Jesus has faithfully described who God is to the disciples. John says in chapter 1, verse 18, about Jesus' mission, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Jesus, He is the one who was at the Father's side and who came and in incarnate became man, took on flesh to reveal to His disciples the person of God. Who has Jesus been declaring God to? It says it in verse 6, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, 
and you gave them to me. We see that Jesus now is repeating what he's already said in verse 2. These disciples who belong to God, who are divinely elected, are the recipients of God's revelation. And God has taken these chosen ones from out of the world and he has given them to Jesus. And so Jesus uses the word world here to describe all of humanity. All those, every single person who finds themselves in a state of rebellion and unbelief towards God, who are under the control of Satan. If you're wondering whether that included you and whether that includes every single person, it does. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says this, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of the gospel sorry to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God if you look around the world it is becoming increasingly godless people are blinded by the God of this world. They want nothing to do with submitting themselves to God. They want to do their own will instead of God's will. And Jesus is saying that God has taken the disciples out of the unbelieving world. They now are no longer a part of those who are in rebellion against God. Why? Because God now has given them to Jesus. He has taken them out of the world. And how has Jesus done this? Jesus has given them, what? God's word. Jesus speaks of your word here as a way to describe the gospel message. So Jesus hasn't just revealed who God is. He's also shared God's plan of salvation that he has come to save. How have these disciples responded to the word of God? How have they responded to the good news that Jesus has come to save? Well, Jesus continues and says, they have kept your word. You guys following along? He says that the disciples have kept your word. The word kept here is used four times in our text. The word kept or keep. And it's important that we understand what this word means. It means to persevere, to hold firm, to guard. Jesus uses the word kept the same way each time, saying that one must hold fast to grip tightly. It's important that we understand this word because our text is divided around this key theme. It's the thread that holds the section of Jesus' prayer together. And in this first section, 
Jesus says that the disciples have gripped tightly to the gospel message. How many of you guys understand what it means to grip something tightly? Anybody know? Let me try to illustrate this for you. We're going to, I'm going to have the, the church's strongest man come up, okay? If you don't know, that's Christoph. He's right there, okay? Um, if you were to follow Christoph on social media, you would know that uh, he loves going to the gym and pumping iron and, um, and all that kind of stuff. Okay? Sorry? Chris Lifts, if you wanted to know to follow him on social media. Chris Lifts. Okay? That's what you need to search. Okay? Chris Lifts. Okay? Thanks, Christina. This is my wedding band. Okay? This is not just a wedding band. Right? This is a symbol of my love and commitment to my wife. This represents my whole marriage, right? When I have this on and I look at my finger, I know that I'm committed to her. And I know that this ring has no beginning nor end. It's circular, right? And so I place my marriage in my hand and I hold it tightly, okay? And I'm going to see if Christoph can open my clenched fist. Okay, bro, you can start trying. Come on, man. You don't want to hurt me. Come on, man, try. Come on. This is what it means to tightly grip and to hold something. Thanks, bro. How many of you parents know that when your kids begin to walk, they go wherever they want. They wander. And they wander without understanding the danger that's around them. Right? And so you, as a good, loving, and caring parent, when you're out in public and you know that there's danger around, what do you do? You what? If your child complains at you, do you let go? And be like, yeah, okay, go. Do you do that? And how many of you know that feeling of holding on to your kid's hand while they're trying to squirm and let go of you? You guys know that feeling? But what do you do as a parent? You clench your fist even more. Why? Because you want to guard and protect them. You want to keep them safe. And you're going to make sure that no harm comes to them, even if that means they cry while you're clenching them in your hand. This is what it means to keep. This is the way that Jesus is using this word and he is saying that the disciples have kept, they've gripped tightly onto the word of God. Jesus explains how the disciples do this in verses 7 and 8. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Verse 7 is a simple just summary. 
Jesus declares his constant dependence on God. That he has given his disciples everything that the Father has given him. And as a result, the disciples have believed that Jesus has come from God. We see this in John chapter 16, verse 30. The disciples say to Jesus, Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. The disciples at this point in Jesus' life already know that Jesus has come from the Father. They believe this. The disciples believe in who Jesus is, that he is the Savior, the one that they've been waiting for. Verse 8 explains how the disciples came to this belief. Jesus faithfully communicated the gospel to them, and they did three things as their response. Look at verse 8. First, they what? They received the gospel. That's what it says, right? And they have received them. What? Your words. The gospel message that I came to share. I was faithful in communicating it. And when I did, they heard and they listened to what I had to say. So they received it. Second, they came to know in truth. Do you guys see that next? So not only did they hear it, but they took time to understand what God was doing through Jesus and that Jesus had come to save them. It's important that we know that at this point, the disciples, they don't fully grasp how Jesus is going to save them. They don't understand fully that he's going to have to go to the cross to die, to raise from the dead, to then ascend back to heaven. They don't get all of that. But they know enough and they are going to see the rest unfolding right before their eyes. So they've received the message. They heard it. Second, they know in truth. They, they took time to understand. And third, and finally, they what? In the end of verse 8, they believed. They believed that God sent Jesus. They heard the gospel. They took the time to understand the gospel and they believed in the gospel. This is how they kept a tight grip on Jesus as their Savior. I want you to understand that this is the same process that each one of us have gone through with our conversion when we came to know Jesus Christ. You see, God took us out of the world. Now you and I are no longer in the world because now we are no longer in rebellion towards God, but we instead now have submitted to His will. God has given us Jesus. How did we become aware of this? Well, first, we heard and we received the gospel message. We had to hear it. We had to hear that we were sinners. That we were far from God. That we were in rebellion against Him. That we wanted nothing to do with God. And second, we had to understand. We had to go through the process of thinking that we're not that good of people. 
The worst person in the world thinks they're a good person. Yes or no? <laughs> but the Word of God says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no such thing as good people. And we had to come to the realization that we have broken God's law and His Word. And that we stand condemned before Him because He is holy and we are not. And that there is nothing that you and I can do to make us right before God. There's no amount of trying that we can do that can save us. And because we come to that conclusion, what do we do? We thirdly believe. We believe that God has sent Jesus to save us. We don't save ourselves. Because if we were to save ourselves, that means that we could lose our salvation. God is the one who has saved us. And we believe in what he has done for us through Jesus Christ. How tightly are you holding on to Jesus in your life? Come on, how tightly are you holding on to? Or are you holding tightly on to other things instead? How firmly do you hold on to the gospel message that Jesus Christ is your Savior? Do you know why we partake in communion here once a month at Center View Church? It's so that it will never become dull on us or lost on us what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. We don't want to forget. We can never forget. My prayer for you and I is that in the limited and feeble strength that we have, that we would choose to use all of it to hold on to Jesus Christ. Second, gripped by God. So first, we need to grip God and hold on to Him, the true message of Jesus Christ being our Savior. Jesus says in verses 9 and 10, now, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Jesus makes clear that he is praying for those that belong to him and God. He is praying for the divinely elected, the ones whom God has chosen. Do you guys see that in the text? And he says, and I am not praying for who? The world. I am not praying for those who have rejected me as the Savior and who do not believe in me. But I am praying for those, God, that you gave me. So is Jesus praying for everyone here? No. He is praying for those whom God has chosen. You see this sharp contrast. This isn't praying for the everybody. Jesus is right now praying just for his disciples. They are the aim of his prayer. His commitment is to them. In verse 10, Jesus says that those that belong to the Father also belong to him. Those that are yours are mine, and those that are mine are yours. We see this beautiful holding together. God and Jesus tightly grip the disciples in their hands because they belong to him. This is the same reason why you grip your children, not everybody else's. 
right? Because if you went to go grab somebody else's kid, what do people think? They're holding on to their children, God and Jesus. And Jesus says that he is glorified in them, in the disciples, those that belong to God. And if you remember from last week, the word glorified means to be clothed in splendor. So this small group of disciples, these 11 men, who according to worldly standard, have nothing special about them to offer, they will, through their obedience and belief, clothe Jesus with splendor. They will bring honor to Jesus as they are sent into the world with the same mission that Jesus started. We're going to see this clearly in verses 17 and 19 to end our text. We clothe Jesus, you and I, with splendor when we walk in obedience to his word. He is glorified through our obedience. If you remember, Jesus said this last week, that he brings glory to God by his willing obedience to go to the cross. God, I glorify you. And now Jesus is saying that we also, we glorify God, we bring glory to Him when we obey what He asks us to do. We bring glory to God every time we share the gospel and go and make disciples. This is why we want to plant churches. We want to bring glory to Jesus. And we know that the best way for us to do that is by making disciples. In verse 11, Jesus now explains why he's praying for the disciples. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. What's the word? Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. As Jesus prepares to face the cross, he knows that his departure back to heaven is coming soon after his resurrection. He'll once again take his place at God's right hand. And so he says that he will no longer be in the world. He is leaving. Yet Jesus' arrest will cause the disciples to scatter and abandon him. This will be the greatest shock of their lives. This is going to be the most stressful moment that these men are going to face. And they're going to need God to sustain them because they will be tempted to lose hope and faith. And so what does Jesus do? He addresses the Father. How? Holy Father. Jesus shows that God is both the one who is transcendent, the sovereign ruler over the heaven and the earth, and at the same time, the one who is loving and caring, Father. And he asks God to what? To keep the disciples in his name. He says, God, please strongly grip them in your hands. 
that they would continue to know you. God, will you hold these men fast as they face the most difficult moments of their lives? You see, the purpose of God gripping the disciples is for them to what? To be one. To live in unity with each other. And he says, listen, God, I I want these that belong to us to be one just like you and I are one. Are you guys getting that? Why? Because the disciples, they're going to scatter when Jesus gets arrested. And so Jesus is saying, God, please bring them back together again. Don't let ours, those that belong to us, to scatter and be isolated. But find a way to bring them together again. And they're only going to be able to do that, God, if you keep them in your hand. Because the goal is what? Is that they would be a united front. That they would be a strong team the same way that you and I are a team. Because we as God's people can do more together than we can do when we're apart. But that's only going to be possible if what? If God holds us in his hand. That this is not just dependent on what we do, but it's dependent on what God does. And if you notice, God doesn't save us to be in isolation. He saves us and brings us together to be family. So when you get a text message from me, and I'm saying, hey, how are you doing? Where were you on Sunday? It's not a guilt trip. No. It's because we're better together. It's because God has called us to be one. Like, wouldn't you think it would be weird? Right? Like, I've been married for 24 years. Right? And then you found out that I don't live with my wife and kids. You would say to me what? What is wrong with you? Because the implication is what? That I should be one with my wife. Share life together. Be present. And Jesus is saying, God, if it's not you, they're not going to stay together. So please hold them together. We must be held together by the powerful grip of God. He doesn't hold us individually when he saves us. He holds us together as his people. We know this. In the most difficult moments of our lives. That we know we need to hold firmly, tightly onto his hands. It's when we struggle the most to do so. Because our problems and difficulties and frustrations somehow have the tendency to get the best of us. And we are tempted to lose strength and to let go of God. We said this last week, right? Typically, the things we need most when we're struggling, like prayer, are the things that we choose to do least. We stop doing what we need most. And if it weren't for God holding us in His hands, we would wander away like little children. We sang the song, right? If it weren't for the Lord holding us fast, 
we would lose our way. We learn from Jesus' prayer that God knows that we who belong to him, who he's chosen, that we're going to face hardships. Yet God chooses to continually grip us in his hands. He does not let go of us. When you and I have no more strength, he is still strong. It's not the, it's not the strength or power of your grip that holds and sustains you faithfully to God. It's instead the powerful grip of God that holds you and sustains you. Never forget this. You and I are not that strong. You and I are not that able. If it were not for God, where would you and I be today? Verse 12, we must grip on to the gospel message. God grips us tightly as we go through challenging moments, but Jesus also grips us. Verse 12, Jesus now looks back. He's done everything that the Father has asked him to do during his earthly ministry. He's tightly gripped the disciples through his whole earthly mission. And now, Jesus is saying, because I've done so, Father, I need you to do the same. Why? Because I'm going back to you, God. I'm not going to be with them anymore. It's your turn. While I was with them, verse 12, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. During Jesus' ministry, from the moment of calling the disciples to this present moment of his prayer, Jesus has always held on to these disciples. He has never let go of them. He has faithfully revealed God and the message of salvation to them. Amen? Jesus guarded and protected them. And he says that not one of them were lost, nor did they fall away from him. The only exception was the son of destruction, Judas Iscariot, who had already left by this time of Jesus' prayer to go and betray him. You see, Judas had every opportunity to believe in Jesus as his Savior. Yet, he never did. Judas, of his own choosing, betrays Jesus. Jesus says in John 13, 18, about Judas, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. You see, in Judas's betrayal, we see both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. The Old Testament predicted in Psalm 41, verses 9 and 10, 
that the Savior would be betrayed. And so the expression, son of destruction, speaks of the fate of the one that would come to betray Jesus. You see, there's a clear sense of finality, of the judgment that is to come upon Judas for his sin against the Savior. And in this, he is fulfilling this prophecy. The question that arises so often with this is, so what, did, did, did God choose Judas for destruction? Or did Judas choose to be the son of destruction? And the answer is both. And we need to wrestle through that reality. <laughs> that in God's sovereign will, Jesus picked he chose the 12, did he not? They all had the same opportunity, did they not? And yet Jesus already knew when he chose Judas that Judas would be the one who would betray him. In this, we see both God's sovereign hand and we see both and we see the fact that ultimately Judas is responsible for his own decision. Those two things are not at odds with each other. They're both true at the same time. I will not speak for you, but I will gladly say that my puny little brain doesn't understand all of these things wholly and completely. But it's what we read here in the text. You need to understand that from the moment of your conversion, until the moment of our death, Jesus has us in his firm grip. But William, what about those like Judas who turned their back on Jesus? It's a simple and it's a difficult truth for us to hear and accept. They never truly believed. How do I have the ability to say this. What Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 30, this. Look. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will... What does it say? No, no. What does it say? never perish. And what? No one will snatch them out of my hand. Father, who has given them, my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. It's impossible to be divinely chosen by God, to be in His firm grip, and to be snatched out of it. Because God is greater than anyone 
or anything. And no one is able to take those that belong to God from God. Or else God is not all-powerful. His grip on our lives is unfailing. The strength of His hand never weakens. He never gets tired of holding us. You know what this comes down to? The vision that you and I have of who God is. The only other option is to view God as being weak and dependent on you and me. You see, the only way someone can lose their salvation, it's if they believe they saved themselves. But when you know God saved you, it's not your job to keep you in his hand. He does. But isn't there a part that I have to play, William? Yeah, we read that already, right? Right? We need to grip on to the gospel message. We also need to hold on to that Jesus is our Savior. Jesus grips us and he holds us tightly because he chooses to. Verses 13 to 16. Gripped by God from the evil one. In verse 13, Jesus says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Again, Jesus reiterates the same thing again and again. He is going back to heaven after his death and resurrection. Jesus is saying this while he is still in the world with his disciples. Why? Because his intention is that they would have his joy. He wants their hearts to be filled with gladness while they remain in the world. You see, Jesus provides us with a joy that is not dependent on our circumstances. Do you not find this is how people are in the world? They're most happiest when? Things are going good in their life. Yes or no? And then something happens, there goes the happiness out the window. But that's not what Jesus provides us with. You see, His joy is not dependent on what we are facing. So much so that we can be experiencing difficulty, challenges, even pain, and have the joy of the Lord. Jesus is reminding his disciples here of what he already said in chapter 15, verses 10 and 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Did you, did, you, did you hear the keeping there? Do you hear the same gripping language? If you grip on to my commandments and abide in my love, because I have gripped on to my Father's commandments, holding on. And if we do that, 
What did Jesus promise that we will have? His what? His joy. If we grip onto the word of God and abide in his love, we will experience the fullness of Jesus' joy. We can be sustained in our lives, knowing that regardless of our circumstances, we can be glad. And then in verses 14 to 16, Jesus shares what the disciples will face because they are no longer of the world. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you, what? Keep them from the evil one. Verse 16 is basically a repetition of verse 15. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus has consistently shared the gospel message with his, discipleship, with his disciples, and they have believed. And because they've believed, God has taken them from out of the world. They no longer belong to it. They're no longer rebellious and unbelieving. They have acknowledged their sin. They have repented and believed. And now as the world looks at them, because they believe in Jesus, how does the world respond? How? With hatred. Am I, am I saying this, guys? Jesus clearly says that the world is going to hate us. And the world is going to hate us because we believe in Jesus Christ. That's what he is saying. Why? Humanity doesn't like the gospel message. Humanity does not want to hear that Jesus Christ is the Savior because it exposes their sin and their need to repent and believe. That's the reason. People on their own inclination do not want to humble themselves and repent. God must convict and it is through the Holy Spirit but when you go up to somebody and you look at them in the eyes and you say, you need to change the way you think. You need to change the way you live. You need to change the course that your life is going into. And they'll even say things like to you, oh, but I know Jesus. And you think to yourself, but if you knew Jesus, then why don't you do what he says? We've gone through this, right? Jesus isn't the version that we have of him of who we think he is. Jesus is who he says he is in his word. You and I don't get to decide. Do you guys know the first thing that Jesus said when he began his earthly ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Change how you think. Change how you live. Change what you do. When people hear that, they're confronted. Wait, you're telling me that I'm not a good person? No. Jesus tells you. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at Jesus. 
But as people get mad at Jesus, they also get mad at who? Us. But we're not speaking of our own accord. And here's the challenge so often, is that people think that when we come to them and present them with this message, that we're coming with this like place of superiority. The truth is, we're just humble people who have had to repent and acknowledge our own sin and to throw ourselves at the cross of Jesus Christ. That there's no arrogance as we come to people. That we're humbly coming to them so that they would see that they are lost and hopeless in their own intelligence and ability. So it shouldn't surprise us that people hate us. It shouldn't surprise us that they don't like our message. But Jesus is clear in what he's asking here, the Father to do. And look, he doesn't ask the Father to take us out of the world, right? Father, I'm going, but they're still here. And I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. So this idea that we as Christians are to live isolated from the rest of the world, that we're somehow to go buy a big plot of land in Milton and build a compound and all go live there, is never what Jesus Christ has envisioned for the church. We are to be here and present in the midst of people even while they hate us. And all that Jesus says is, Father, please keep them from who? The evil one. Because the evil one, the devil, Satan, he has schemes for me and you. He will destroy us if we were not in the hands of God. And we know this. 1 John 5, 19 says that we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of who? The evil one. The God of this world has blinded people and they can't see the glory of Jesus Christ. So we can't be surprised that we will face resistance. That the enemy has schemes to cause you and I to stumble and fall. And that if we were not being held in the hand of Almighty God, we would stumble and fall. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer that we went through two weeks ago? Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's a prayer of dependency. And it's not a dependence that you are holding on to God, but it's a dependence of God holding on to us. This should give us great peace. This should give us great hope. That no matter what we face, that there is evil lurking around the corner. And you and I don't have to be afraid or worried or scared. Why? Because God will keep us from the evil one. He has us tightly gripped in his hands. And he will not let go of you or me or you or you or you. He will not let go of us. 
That's a good opportunity to say that. Absolutely. Praise God. We call this the preservation of the saints. We call this God holding us in His mighty hand. We know that God is powerful enough to keep us and protect us and provide for us. We are in the world, but we are not of the world because we belong to who? God. And He chose us and we're His. And because we are His, who is responsible for us? He is. And finally, we're sent on mission. Jesus ends this section declaring the ultimate purpose for the disciples. He says in 17 and 18, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The word sanctify here means set apart for service. These disciples are to be consecrated for sacred duty to God. Their lives now are for His service. How does God sanctify us as His disciples? How? Through the truth. Sanctify them in what? In the truth. It is the Word of God that produces in us what we call the process of sanctification. We are increasingly consecrated and separated from the world that we don't belong to as we engage with God's Word in truth. And as we engage with God's Word in truth, we are to be increasingly conformed to the image of God. Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, so that you will know what is the good and acceptable and pleasant will of God. How does that happen? Through the Word. We are increasingly sanctified, becoming more and more like Jesus as we allow His Word to take root in our hearts. So the question is asked, why all of this keeping in this text? What's the point of us keeping the gospel message? Of God keeping us in the gospel message? Of Jesus keeping us in the gospel message? And of God keeping us from the schemes of the devil? What's the whole point? Why does Jesus go through all of this in his prayer for us? Why does he want us to have unity and his joy? Because Jesus is sending us to continue the mission that he has started. Just as God sent Jesus to the world with the good news of the Savior that has come, now Jesus sends us to continue preaching that good news to the rest of the world. Jesus is looking, as he is praying here, to the moment after his resurrection when he is going to commission the disciples. Matthew 28 is one of our favorite verses here, verses 19 and 20. Sorry, verses 18 to 20. 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus is praying in light of this moment when he gives them this mission. So just ending here, verse 19. How is Jesus going to do this? Well, he says that it's for their sake, for the disciples' sake, for your sake, for my sake, that what? That he consecrates himself. Jesus sets himself apart. Isn't that what he's saying? And this word consecrate in the original is the same word sanctify, which means to be set apart. So Jesus is saying, God, I'm set apart. I'm, I'm setting apart my life. And here's just a really interesting tidbit of what Jesus is actually saying here. He's looking back to the Old Testament. And he's looking at the whole sacrificial system. Okay, guys, just follow me. I'm done in three minutes. You see, Jesus, he is set apart, consecrated for the service of God. You hear that? Jesus is set apart for the service of God. He is the priest who performs the sacrifice of the lamb for the sinner. You get that? So Jesus is in the service of God. He is the priest who in the Old Testament, you'd have to come to the temple and bring your lamb. You'd have to put your hand on the lamb the lamb would be slaughtered, and that you were transferring your sin upon the lamb. And the priest would perform that on your behalf. But Jesus is not just in the service of God. Jesus is also himself the sacrifice of God. He is the lamb himself. He is the lamb himself who gives his life for the sin of the sinner. He is both and. And what is he looking to He's looking to the cross that it's ours just in front of him. And he is saying, I'm going to sanctify myself. I'm giving my life. And as I give my life to them and to those who will come to believe who are mine, I will be sanctifying them so that they can go and be sent to continue the work that I've started. What a powerful prayer. Why don't you stand with me? I don't know about you. My only hope is that we would all leave here today knowing that God is the one who is able and powerful to hold us in his hands. And that we have the opportunity, as we have repented and believed, to hold on to Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that no matter whatever we go through, when we pray to God, we know that we are in His powerful hands and that He will bring us through. And we don't have to be worried about the enemy or the devil or the things that lurk around us because we are in God's firm grip. You know, the song that we sang at the beginning, there are a group of men who are going around holding revivals. And they came to know of a woman in England who was a songwriter. And one of the people that were responsible for one of these meetings 
had a young man come to them who was struggling in his life, in his faith. He explained the situation to the lady through letter, because this was in the 1906 or 1908. And months later, he received poems that he could then give to this man so that he could be encouraged in his faith. And as one of these poems was given to the musicians, to those who were leading worship, they put music to this song, He Will Hold Me Fast, to be a constant reminder that it is God who holds us tightly. And that with the strength that He has given us, that we would choose to do the same. Amen? Father God, we thank You so much that You hold us in Your hand. Thank you, Lord, that you hold us. You save us. You have chosen us. And with that, Lord, we experience the joy of this unity and the joy that you give us that is not dependent on human circumstances. Father, we're delighted to know that in our moments of weakness, of hardship and challenges, you keep us in your hand. You have a firm grip on us. And you will never let go because, God, those that are yours cannot be snatched out of your hand. <laughs> no one can take us out of the mighty hand of God. So, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to hold on to you, to hold on to Jesus, the Savior, with all that we have in our lives, that we would be holding on with tooth and nail in all that is in us, Lord Jesus. Please, God, enable us, God, we pray. And send us, God. We know that you hold us tightly because there is still work to do. There is still the message of the gospel to take to more people, to more places, to our friends, to our families, to our neighbors and coworkers to the people of Mississauga and far beyond, God, that they still need to hear that Jesus Christ is the Savior. And as we find opposition, Lord God, and let us not fret or be worried, because, Lord God, we know that you will save those whom you've chosen. Our job is just to be faithful, to go and to preach the message, God. Father, as we worship you today, I pray that our hearts would be filled with the truth of your word, God, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.